Back to another episode of the Feminized Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host Lindsay, bringing you another yet another episode in the Year of Polygamy series, where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And we're getting into um, some really messy, complicated history, as if we haven't done that already. I'm going to be talking about the events leading up to the manifesto today, and I just want to give you a heads up that. Because of the way that uh, my schedule has been and the way that I've constructed this history, we're going to go a little bit out of chronological order. Um, for the next few episodes, we're gonna we're gonna bump back and forth, and I have some historians lined up that because of their schedules can't do it until later. So uh, just just follow us along for the ride, and um, hopefully you'll know the history enough that you'll be able to also put it together yourself. So, uh, let's start with what we know about the manifesto. Now, remember, we in Nauvoo, we have public denials about polygamy. It's kept secret. Uh, we have the Articles of Marriage stating one thing about marriage, and then we have practices being different. We have Doctrine and Covenants later, uh, 132 later coming in. And then we have in 1852... The LDS Church's sort of public acknowledgement of the principle. We we know some things. We know that in 1855, Counselor Heber C. Kimball would say, quote, the principle of plurality of wives will never be done away. Okay, that's sort of his, his uh, apostle prophetic sort of statement. It's never going to be done away with. Now, this is important because... Fundamentalists later on in contemporary uh, times are going to argue that they were tasked with the responsibility to keep the principle on the earth to fulfill these sort of prophecies. That, uh, and we'll talk about this later, but that John Taylor, you know, secretly told some of them, "Listen, I know the government is saying one thing, but you guys have this very special, very high calling. You guys are the elite, and you have to practice this." So many fundamentalists actually believe this that they are living the higher order of Mormonism, and that people like myself, the LDS tradition, are sort of the lazy masses that. Uh, are kind of keeping steward of the institution while they, they do the, the heavy lifting. And we'll get into all of that later, but I just want you to keep that in the back of your head when you hear quotes like this saying, the principle of plurality of wives will never be done away, because that's important. We know that in 1858, Brigham Young starts to get discouraged by the number of divorces. Of course, this is right after the Mormon Reformation, and they speed up these plural marriages. Bam, 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 bam. All these people are getting married. And people are getting divorced almost as quickly. Of course, Brigham Young gets really frustrated. And he says he, quote, did not feel disposed to any polygamous ceilings just now. And so he temporarily, temporarily suspends plural ceilings for a short time. So no plural marriages are being done. By con April Conference of 1861, he would say, quote, I would say if the Lord should reveal that it is his will to go so far as to become a shaking Quaker, Amen to it, and let the sexes have no connection. It is so far as for man to have but one wife, let it be so. 
the word and will of the Lord is what I want, the will and mind of God, end quote. So that's in 1861. Uh, about four years later, in 1865, Brigham Young would say this, quote, As for polygamy or any other doctrine the Lord has revealed, it is not for me to change, alter, or renounce it. My business is to obey when the Lord commands, and this is the duty of all mankind, end quote. So you see that Brigham Young sort of seemingly contradicts himself. Now, I think that this is important for modern Mormons to understand. We like to say that the gospel never changes, that the church never changes. Um, and these are some good examples of how you can make an argument that they do, that the prophets are men acting through what they believe is God, because you have Brigham Young who goes overboard with preaching how critical and essential celestial marriage and plural marriage is, right? And then he gets tired of it and he suspends that and then he comes back and says, hey, I can never suspend it. It's not up to me. So this is just a very human sort of way to do things. And I think that we need to remember that. So remember in 1862, Congress passes the Morrill Act, uh, which outlaws polygamy. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to really lean heavily on Mike D. Michael Quinn's uh, fantastic, fantastic dialogue article where he talks about post-manifesto polygamy. And I'm going to link to it. It's super, super long. But uh, I'm going to lean very heavily on it because his research is just so, so doggedly thorough. So that's what we're, we're going to go with. So all of the credit goes to him. This is, he has done amazing groundwork. And then we're going to pull from other essays as well. But Mike Quinn notes that there were apparently, um, when the Morrill Act was, a, was passed, that there were apparently appeals from friendly non-Mormons for the church to voluntarily suspend the practice of, of polygamy without government coercion. Brigham Young responds, like this. He says, quote, but suppose that this church should give up this holy order of marriage, then would the devil and all who are in league with him against the cause of God rejoice that they had prevailed upon the saints to refuse to obey one of the revelations and commandments of God to them, end quote. So he says, you know what? We are not going to give this up. That's really nice of you that you're asking us to give it up without the government being involved, but we're not. And should we have to surrender it, then, then what they're going to do is ask us to give up all the doctrines of the church, which I think is interesting. This is kind of this, we, we see this debate right now with the whole, you know, it's 2014 and we're having this whole religious freedom sort of controversy. And they say, listen, if we allow gay marriage, then the church is going to have to perform ceilings. And Brigham Young is making a similar argument. He says, listen, if we give this up, then you're going to make us give up all of our distinctive doctrines and we're not going to do that. It's a slippery slope. Two months later, after he says that, he would say, quote, If it is wrong for a man to have more than one wife at a time, the Lord will reveal it by and by, and he will put it away that it will not be known in the church, end quote. So that is a quote that could be used for the sort of modern-day LDS argument. And again, I bring up these quotes because I think it's super, super important for us to remember the context. You know, I grew up as an LDS Mormon girl, and I was taught that the FLDS and all these other factions, the AUB and and uh, the Kingstons and all of these other factions of Mormonism were wrong and misguided and almost wicked. And yet, if you look at these words of the prophets, there are arguments to be made for their way of living, and there are arguments to be made for my way of living. So just keep that in the back of your head. 
So in 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad is finished, and it starts bringing in more non-Mormons to Utah. So Apostle George Q. Cannon is starting to push back on this idea that, you know, because people are starting to ask, is church is the church going to give up polygamy now? It's 1870, and uh, you guys have had your fun, but let's give it up. Uh, George Q. Cannon says, quote, God has revealed it. He must sustain it. We cannot. We cannot bear it off. He must, end quote. Apostle Wilford Woodruff, at the time, he was apostle at the time, reaffirmed, quote, If we were to do away with polygamy, it would be one feather in the bird, one ordinance in the church and kingdom. Do away with that. Then we must do away with prophets and apostles, with revelation and the gifts and the graces of the gospel, and finally give up our own religion altogether and turn sectarians and do as the world does, then all would be right, end quote. Um, and Mike Quinn has this great line in his essay where he kind of hilariously notes that Brigham Young, this is Mike Quinn's words, quote, Brigham Young demonstrated his resistance to the Moral Act by fathering five polygamous children and marrying six more wives after 1862, end quote. So the Moral Act outlaws polygamy and uh, Brigham Young, his uh, activism, if you will, is through plural marriage. He has five more kids and he marries six more wives. So th- there's his civil disobedience. In uh, the early 1870s, other church leaders start began saying that it's not necessary for people to be polygamous to be exalted. Now, this is kind of the shift in doctrine. Now, remember, at during the Mormon Reformation time, we talk about this fever pitch of righteousness and obedience and fundamentalism, and we have people doing crazy violent things for it and people marrying tons, tons and tons of people together because of this principle. It's necessary. It's, it's a way to be exalted. And after the Morrell Act and by the 1870s, church leaders are starting to distance themselves, right? Because now it's criminal. And it, this is, it's an interesting intersection of things. It's both leaders saying one thing to the public and then acting privately, but it's also starting to be this, this inundation of American popular culture inundating these people and polygamy is becoming less and less popular and acceptable even amongst the Mormons. Because of course it's always been unpopular and unaccept- unacceptable in America, in America in general. But as it becomes criminalized, it starts to change the focus of, uh, these, these people. Brigham Young, uh, was doing this sort of dance of private and public discussions of this holy principle. And we know in 1871, he told a congregation in the Salt Lake Tabernacle that if Congress would pass a law compelling of every man in the United States to marry honorably, quote, we would abandon polygamy. And in June of the year of that same year, he preached, quote, if it is right, reasonable and proper, and the Lord permits a man to take half a dozen wives, take them. But if the Lord says, let them alone, let them alone. How long? Until we go down to the grave if the Lord demand it, end quote. So his rhetoric is starting to shift just a little bit saying, listen, if the Lord doesn't want us to do that, then we don't have to do it. But if the Lord does want us to do it, then we have to do it. Um, and I think that that's important. It's sort of laying this groundwork for what we're going to see in the manifesto. 
something you might not know about Brigham is in 1871, he's indicted for adultery. And these public statements that he's making start being discussed in this private, secret Salt Lake School of the Prophets. Now, that's something that uh, started back in the early time, earlier times of the church. These School of the Prophets, they get together, and it's this lively discussion of these these issues. It was attended by all the general authorities and prominent leaders in the Salt Lake Valley. We know that in 1871, at the same time, Daniel H. Wells, he's the second counselor in the first president presidency at the time, would say, quote, it is possible that we as a people may be denied the principle of plurality of wives hereafter for not honoring it thus far. If we do not honor this great principle, God will surely take it from us, end quote. So that's an interesting quote. So now he's saying maybe the reason why this is going away is because we weren't doing it right. We were not righteous enough. So look what we have done. We have we have brought this on ourselves through our wickedness, and uh, we need to either step it up or it's going to disappear from us completely. Brigham Young Jr., who is also an apostle, and now remember we talked about him a little bit when we talked about the step Steptoe expedition, would also say in that same month that he would never give up the practice of plural marriage unless, quote, President Young was to take the responsibility upon himself by counseling us to lay it aside for the time being. End quote. And uh, then, you know, Counselor Wells reads a letter from Brigham Young, which states, quote, that there was no danger of us having to surrender any portion of our religion. But as to polygamy, if anything ever caused a principle to be with- withheld from us, it will be in consequence of the God of heaven being displeased with many who have gone into it. End quote. Now, this is something that's talked about in sort of uh, the dynamics of religious fundamentalism in general and sort of uh, any religious organization. I'm going to use this word. I'm not applying it to Mormonism specifically, but in cults where you have a leader that's making prophecies and then the prophecies don't turn out. And we actually see this with Warren Jeffs later on when he prophesies the end of the world and it doesn't come. What is the first thing you do when you make a prophecy and it's failed? You blame it on your congregants. You say, you say you weren't righteous enough. This is, you're being punished. That is why this great thing didn't happen. And this is where the rhetoric starts to change a little bit. You know, in the 1850s and 1860s, there is this firm acknowledgement and almost stubborn, stubborn cry of, we're, this is who we are. And if you don't get on board, you will be damned. And now it's, look what you have done. You haven't been righteous enough. To many at the time, these statements would have seemed to be calculated to sort of help get the the state of Utah at statehood, right? In 1872, there's this constitutional effort for Utah to become a state. And so many people are thinking that these statements, even people in the church, faithful people in the church are saying, okay, this is just something, a game we need to play. These are the things we need to say to become a state, right? But as we know in contemporary Mormonism, if leaders are playing a political game that we're not in the loop on and they're saying one thing to us, we interpret it through many different lenses and it gets sort of muddled in this this weird cultural way. And so we're going to see that later on as well. 
George Buchanan chairs the committee that adopts the first constitutional provision. And he would privately tell people, quote, that no man of the first presidency or 12 apostles has ever had any idea of giving up the doctrine of celestial marriage or its practice. Certainly, they have never made such idea if they have had it public, end quote. So he's saying, listen, if they said it public, it's not something that they want to do. So he's trying to say, listen, we're only doing this for statehood. Yet, Utah does not get what they want in 1872. It's a failed effort. And Brigham Young would say, quote, we would not be under the necessity, perhaps, of taking more than one wife. And so he's starting to say, listen, if we become a state, it's not going to be a necessary thing. This goes on for a long time. Brigham Young is a prophet for for a while, and in 20 years of his presidency, he apparently authorized others to make at least sort of subtle suggestions that under the right certain circumstances, plural marriage could be you know, suspended for a time, just like he had done, or maybe stopped for a time with God's sanction. That's also important, too, of course, when we start to see the practices and this conflict being hashed out after the manifesto. And, I, and I'm and i only saying that because it's easy for us to say, like, Wilford Woodruff, he's such a hypocrite, he marries after the manifesto. Remember the foundation. He's an apostle at the time, and he's going through all of this back and forth, this double speak. Of course, we see this in Nauvoo. We see this with Joseph Smith telling the people one thing and practicing something privately. He's he's saying polygamy is bad, but plural marriage is awesome. And um, it's, it's this double speak between public and private. And Brigham Young is doing the same thing. Apostle John Henry Smith would say, quote, President Young once proposed that we marry but one wife. Many Mormons have come to similar conclusions, end quote. Um, and of course, Mike Quinn is um, such an amazing researcher. He, he includes so many of, of these quotes, of this back and forth, and it's just fantastic. But we do know that, um, you know, when Brigham Young dies, John Taylor becomes his successor. And he becomes known for being unflinching, as Mike Quinn says, unflinching in his defiance of the federal pressure to polygamy. And of course, when we talked about the houses of polygamy, we talk about the Gardo house, which John Taylor lives in for a time. And the Gardo house is this brilliant Victorian home that has all these secret passages where they would hide people, you know, like where even John Taylor would hide from federal officials. John Taylor becomes stalwart in this. He see, he's stubborn, and this is sort of the thing that he is known for, is not giving in to this pressure. John Taylor would tell the October General Conference um, in 1879 that Congress had, quote, committed a shameless infraction of the Constitution of the United States. And he would say that no legislative enactment nor judicial rulings would stop them from practicing polygamy or from making them feel bad about it. So now in 1882, the Morrill Act doesn't do anything. We know, you know, Brigham Young marries his wife's polygamy is continuing in full force, right? So in 1882, 
Congress passed the Edmonds Law, which, like we've talked about before, adds a little bit more consequences to it, right? It, it gives five years of imprisonment and $500 fine for anyone that enters into polygamy, and six months imprisonment and $300 fine for the resulting of unlawful cohabitation. So this sort of disenfranchises all polygamists because, you know, we see this now, uh, the cohabitation laws in Utah are have kind of gone through a shift lately, but they're saying if we can prove that you enter into polygamy, five years in prison, $500 fine. And if you're living together, unlawful cohabitation, it's 300 bucks, and you're going to be in prison for six months. President Taylor gives this sermon, and he says this, quote, Are we going to suffer a surrender of this point? And then he says, No, never, no, never, end quote. He, he really gives hope to the people who are living in polygamy. They need this sort of assurance that kind of is more firm from when the time Utah is trying to get statehood. They really need this. Um, in October 1882, he announces a revelation where he says, quote, you may appoint Seymour B. Young, who was, who happened to be a monogamist, to fill up the bank the vacancy in the presiding quorum of the 70s. If he will conform to my law, for it is not meet that men who will not abide my law shall preside over my priesthood, end quote. So remember, we've talked about this in earlier episodes. He's saying, I want this man, who is a monogamist, to be in the quorum of the 70, but he can only do it if he's a polygamist because I'm not going to let a man in the priesthood ruling over other polygamists if he can't enter the law himself. So, of course, federal pressure is increasing. They want to start arresting and following through on these laws. John Taylor, he becomes even more defiant. Now, from our eyes, maybe it's humorous or maybe it's annoying, but you can see how if you're living this, and these are your families, like you actually have children from a polygamous marriage, you want a strong leader like this. So John Taylor has a special, calls a special priesthood meeting at the April conference in 1884. And he asks for any monogamous serving in the ward bishoprics or stake pres- presidencies either to make a preparation to enter polygamy and marry, marry plural wives or to resign from their church office. And he even calls out the monogamous stake presidents by name. All right, he puts them on the spot. He's like, put up or shut up. You become a polygamist or this, you know, or you have to step down from leadership. He is not going to let the government bully him into this practice. He is a firm, firm believer of it. In what is said at his last public address on February 1st, 1885, he would remind the Salt Lake City audience of the federal efforts to suppress polygamy. And he asked this question to them. He says, are you going to disobey God in order to be loyal to the government? Is that what you're going to do? And again, he famously says, quote, no, never, no, never, no, never, with emphasis, end quote. Uh, President Taylor would then leave the stand and he goes into this sort of permanent exile to avoid the arrest. So he's under, he's like the government's main man now because not only is he, you know, the, the face of the church, the, the leader of the church, and he's practicing it, but he is openly defiant and encouraging others to do so as well. For the next 
two and a half years, he is living on this underground. Now, the Mormon underground is something we're going to talk about in the future, too. And he, he goes into various hiding places. Um, he... It's said that, Mike Quinn says that in July of 1885, he suggested that due to the federal anti-polygamy raid, the American flags on all church properties were to be lowered half-mass for Independence Day, which outraged the non-Mormons of Salt Lake City and nearly caused a riot in the city, end quote. So, John Taylor's in hiding, and he continues to be defiant. In fact, he says, you know what? On Independence Day, everybody lower your American flags half mass because we're going to show the government that they can't, they can't push us around. And of course, the non-Mormons are like, what are you doing? This is so disrespectful. Almost causes a riot. John Taylor's in hiding, and he has his first counselor, George Q. Cannon, issue a first presidency letter at the October 1885 General Conference, which says, quote, well-meaning friends of ours have said that our refusal to renounce a principle of celestial marriage invites destruction. They warn and implore us to yield. We did not reveal celestial marriage. We cannot withdraw or renounce it. End quote. George Buchanan, who gives that arrest, is rewarded for that by being arrested four months later by a U.S. Marshal. And, um, he has, he, he has a $45,000 bail bond, which is a lot of money in 1885. President John Taylor has Cannon forfeit the bond so that Cannon could return to hiding. During 1884 through 86, this was when there were all sorts of appeals by prominent Mormons and non-Mormons um, to President Taylor. They say, issue a new revelation that gives us a way to set aside plural marriage. Interestingly enough, here we have Mormons agitating for change, right? These are Mormons asking and petitioning and writing and pleading and begging the prophet saying, please just pray to the Lord. Ask if polygamy can be set aside. We don't want to go to prison. We don't want to go to jail. And of course, I'm hoping to have Lori Winder Stromberg come on and talk about the women that were jailed too, because that's a fascinating story. John Taylor starts to feel the pressure. Um, because now it's not only his own defiance, but he's seeing that this is causing a lot of suffering. It's breaking up families. There's a lot of fear. So he, quote, asked the Lord if it would not be right under the circumstances to discontinue plural marriage. And it said that John Taylor, quote, received the word of the Lord to him in which the Lord said that plural marriage was one of his eternal laws and that he had established it, that man had done so, and he would sustain and uphold his saints in carrying it out, end quote. So he prays. He, he takes those letters. He prays. He's like, do we really have to do this? And his revelation is, not only do you have to do it, but I, the Lord, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you carry this out. I know it's a challenge, but I've got your back on this. Now, uh, Mike Quinn notes that avail available documents of 1885 to 86 are silent about this revelation, right? But much later documentation and commentary um, identify this revelation as being received by John Taylor on the 27th of September 1886. So if you want to Google it, I might link to it. There's um, 
there's what's called the four hidden revelations, and this is one of them. And fundamentalists really rely on these revelations because here we have not just a statement made in general conference that could be more easily dismissed than like a revelation, but here we have John Taylor petitioning the Lord and the Lord telling him, not only is it never going to go away, but I'm going to help sanction it. So this is very important for fundamentalists. So there are, there are four similar revelations to this that they're called these sort of four hidden revelations. I just want to point out that still in this time in the church, at the, almost at the turn of the century, we have prophets who are praying and then dictating revelations in sort of the scripture language, this New Testament, Old Testament language, just like Joseph Smith was. And many of them are still included into the canon, but some now start to not be. And this would be one of those cases. This revelation would dramatically change the situation for John Taylor. Until 1886, his public and private sort of defense and, you know, uh, resistance towards the government argued that he had married his 15 wives prior to the 1862 Morrill Act and that his last polygamous children had been born in 1881. And so, therefore, all of his polygamous children were legitimate and he wasn't breaking any laws because he is claiming that he had had, he'd married these wives and had his children before the Moral Act was passed. And he even says that he, you know, isn't even sleeping with them. He, quote, has entirely separated himself so far as bed is concerned, end quote. Yet three months after recording this this secret 1886 revelation, which I'd encourage you all to read, John Taylor, who is now 78 years old, marries a plural wife who was 26 years old. Her name is Josephine, I think I'm saying this right, Ruache, on December 19th, 1886. So this reconfirms his commitment. He says, listen, God has asked me to do this. I don't want to do this. And if you read the context of this this um, revelation, it's really complicated. You can see that John Taylor is really wrestling with this. If I remember the context right, I don't have it right in front of me, but he goes to Arizona. He, you know, kind of does this prophetic, like, going into the wilderness to kneel down and pray, and he wrestles with this. And he's in his revelation, you can see he's asking the Lord and he's in pain and he's saying, do we really have to do this? And the Lord is saying, yes, you do. So of course, as a faithful prophet, he takes on another wife. He puts his money where his mouth is and he marries another woman in 1886. He's 78. She is 26. The ceremony was performed by her father, who happened to be a high priest at the time, and it was also witnessed by George Q. Cannon, who was one of the underground guards. Oh, and sorry, and one of the underground guards, Charles H. Wilkin. And by the end of 1886, President Taylor chooses for the first time in his life to specifically and deliberately violate the laws of polygamy and, unla- and unlawful cohabitation, although he had been defiant in the past He's actually saying, nope, I don't care anymore. This is what we're going to do. So he lives with his new wife in Kaysville, Utah, and he would for the remaining seven months of his life. Now, other general authorities do the same sort of thing. At the time, Apostle Wilford Woodruff, 
would also dictate a revelation in January of 1880, um, which was sort of sanctioned by John Taylor. John Taylor says it's, quote, accepted by the word of the Lord. And um, this revelation by Woodruff states in part, quote, And I say unto, I say again, woe unto the nation or house of people who seek to hinder my people from obeying the patriarchal law of Abraham, which leadeth to a celestial glory. For whosoever do those things shall be damned, end quote. And then Wilford Woodruff starts to go on his shtick as well and publishes sermons. And he says, quote, if we were to give up polygamy today, they would have to give up revelations, prophets, apostles, temples, ordinances, and the church itself, end quote. Of course, we see this again. It's this whole slippery slope argument. In their mind, they really believed it. This one thing goes, it's foundational, then it all has to go. And from a fundamentalist perspective, look at the church now. It is. It is true, in a, in a sense. Look at the things the LDS Church talks about. They talk about modesty. They talk about gay marriage. They talk about all these things that seemingly don't matter to these unusual, peculiar doctrines of the LDS Church. And I would argue, and some fundamentalists would argue, not a fundamentalist, but fundamentalists would argue that the Church is just giving us Latter-day Saints busy work. Busy work to think about. You know, the LDS Church removed itself from the Adam-God theory. They, they disavowed the Adam-God theory, which said that, that, you know, Eve was the heavenly mother of our planet, and Adam was actually heavenly father. So he brings down his daughter, and also his wife, Eve, sleeps with her, and she becomes Heavenly Mother and the first woman of this world. He does the same thing with a different plural wife for a different world, and she's the Eve of that world, and so on and so on and so on, and that's why you need more women. The church disavows this. Why? Because they can't have members practicing polygamy after the manifesto. So it's interesting that fundamentalists have a really, really good case to make here, and there is some truth to the thing that says if we take away plural marriage, then everything else has to go. And in a sense, all of these really unique, strange, really radical doctrines are not being practiced anymore by the LDS Church because, in my opinion, the LDS Church is foundationally built upon polygamy. John Hamer notes that, you know, any sort of sect that came out of the Restoration that stopped before polygamy. I mean, all restorationist traditions had to grapple with polygamy a little bit, and some of them lived it for a while and then came back. But anyone that didn't adopt polygamy looks completely different than any sect that did adopt polygamy. And so the LDS Church has way more in common with, say, like the FLDS and uh, any fundamentalist group than it does with, say, the RLDS. And the RLDS is more alike the traditions that broke off and didn't come west than we are. So it's interesting. So I know that's kind of a radical idea, but I think that there is an argument to be made there. In 1884, this is the October General Conference, George Hugh Cannon said that the appeal for a new revelation to, quote, lay a polygamy aside was in vain because such a revelation would be useless, unless indeed the people should apostatize. And that's the same year that President John Taylor goes into hiding, and there's a few periodicals that are published saying that stopping practice 
of plural marriage would be like not only impossible but wrong. And of course, these come out in the Desert Evening News. In April of 1885, the Desert Evening News editorialized this, quote, the demand that plural marriage relationships should be abolished were the church to do that as an entirety, God would reject the saints as a body. The authority of the priesthood would be withdrawn and the Lord would raise up another people of greater valor and stability, end quote. Again, think about this. From a fundamentalist perspective, the LDS church is in complete apostasy because here you have not just President Taylor having a revelation, you have all of these apostles saying the same thing. Now, of course, the LDS church does not include these statements or these revelations in our canon anymore, right? But um, there is good historical evidence for them. George Buchanan would, the following month, publish two editorials in the Juvenile Instructor. And he suggests that, quote, We do not ask you to give up your belief in this doctrine. We merely ask for you to suspend it for the time being your practice of it. He says that that is a suggestion made to him. And he says, quote, I look upon such a suggestion as from the devil, that doing such a thing would demonstrate utter apostasy and merit the vengeance of God. End quote. So think about that now. Think about something that's super, super important. Let's say, let's say something as fundamental as like sex before marriage. Okay. Let's say that there's government pressure and people are saying, listen, you know, let's just, maybe this is a bad comparison, but maybe just you can have sex before marriage for a time, just for a time. And then we'll go back to it. And they're saying that doesn't work that way. You cannot give something like that. And if you do, it's a suggestion from the devil and God is going to raise up a better people that, that can handle this because you can't. In June of 1885, the Desert Evening News would lash out against those who would quote the DNC 124, um, Quote, in favor of the renunciation or temporary suspension of the law of celestial marriage. The editorial um, said that, quote, the shallow pretext of semi-apostate were twisting the doctrine and covenant quotations out of context and that this revelation does not apply even remotely to the present situation. Now, we see this struggle. Now, we see, like, people that want to change the church make it more inclusive. We see this same thing of, like, you're you're slipping into apostasy if you say that. This is the exact same struggle, and I imagine it would have felt, felt very similar to what... Um, it feels like now, you know, we we had people back then that were sort of trying to modernize the church, trying to take away the teeth and the, and the sting and the pain of polygamy. And the devout faithful leaders were pretty fundamentalist about it and saying, no, that God wants to try his people. We are a tried people and we are a devout people. Get on board or go home. So, of course, this happens more and more. By November of 1885, George uh, Q. Cannon makes a declaration to George L. Miller, who happened to be an emissary from the Cleveland administration. And um, and he, he says, we're not going to do that. If we accepted it, we would have to repudiate the principles. So now they're telling the government, no, we're not going to do this. As we know... The current LDS church is not practicing polygamy, right? So we know that, that this is going to end. We know how this story ends, right? But uh, we know that John Taylor refuses to give this up, and um, he will not compromise. And 
George Buchanan takes us on as well. And then some of his, you know, other presidents do as well. For a time, Wilford Woodruff had been one of the most vocal opponents of surrendering plural marriage. But as soon as he becomes the presiding authority of the church as a senior apostle, he starts to have some ideas of compromise. He feels the pressure too. By September 1887, Wilford Woodruff, George Q. Cannon, and church lawyer Legrand Young would privately say that they were convinced it was necessary for polygamists to promise the courts to refrain from the unlawful cohabitation because they seemed to think it was necessary to do something good to convince Congress that they really were sincere in becoming a state. So John Taylor, of course, dies. He is adamant that this isn't going to happen. Wilford Woodruff, of course, believes in the practice, but he's starting to work with the government now directly, and he's starting to be a little bit more open to the compromise. He's saying, can't we, you know, maybe work something out just so we can show the government that we are really sincere, that we want to become a state and that they can trust us. So he presents this as a proposal to the rest of the apostles about 12 days later after he says this privately. And he did it in this sort of like laissez-faire, relaxed way and says, you know, if we make this document without a date or signature, but supposed to have come from the administration of Washington, um, then then maybe it'll work if we just kind of leave it open. And Legrand Young drafts the exact wording polygamists might use in um, making this promise before the courts. Woodruff was not very earnest about it. He just kind of passes it as a suggestion. And of course, the apostles voted it down because they were, quote, the almost unanimous opinion that no Latter-day Saint could make any such promise and still be true to the covenants he had made with God and his brethren when in the house of God and having wives sealed to him, end quote. So he's, you know, he's like, let's just float it around. What do you guys think? And they're like, absolutely not. We're not going to do this. President Wilford Woodruff has secretly made up his mind, but he doesn't want to announce it that he is going to sort of ask people to put it on hold for a while because he wants the apostles to get on board too. And he realized he's facing this really difficult administrative dilemma that would limit his leadership. Mike Quinn says, quote, On one hand, several of the apostles, particularly 30-year-old Heber J. Grant, had already told President Woodruff that they regarded him as too old and wanted a younger, more vigorous man as church president. On the other hand, more vigorous and eminently qualified man to whom Wilford Woodruff looked as his counselor and strength was George Buchanan, against whom half of the apostles bore various personal and administrative grudges, as such intensity that they effectively blocked the organization of the First Presidency for almost two years following the death of John Taylor. The apostles had already convened on August 3rd, 1887 for the first of several periodic meetings where they not only severely criticized Cannon, but also indicated that they had deep-seated resentments against the former First Presidency for making decisions and setting policy without consulting the apostles. The apostles were so polarized that when Wilford Woodruff specifically proposed organizing the First Presidency in March of 1888, four apostles voted against the motion. All this frustrated Wilford Woodruff's desire to organize the First Presidency and choose his counselors, made him hesitant as president of the quorum to tell the apostles he approved the proposition for which he was ostensibly asking their evaluation, 
but actually seeking their endorsement and caused him by 1889 to confide to his secretary that, quote, he would about as soon attend a funeral as one of our council meetings, end quote. So this gives us some insight. So there's this interesting poll going on. Now, you know, we know that Brigham Young's word was law, right? And John Taylor had a little bit more of that. And he would dictate a revelation and it would be so. Wilford Woodruff starts to do this. And his, we can see that the Quorum of the Twelve doesn't really trust him, maybe in the same ways that they trusted the other prophets. It's this really political environment. To give them credit, they're grappling with a huge, huge controversial issue, right? But we're seeing this internal struggles. We're seeing these internal politics going on. They block the motion. They limit the power. Things have to be done secretly. Wilford Woodruff is having these secret revelations, and he's only telling a few people about it. And he says, quote, that he would rather attend a funeral than one of his council meetings. So that's how fun it was to be a leader of the church at this time. The quorum is divided. And of course, they start sending out mixed messages concerning this practice, right? In a time when you know, the whole body is also divided and also really conflicted, but also really uneasy. They're looking for strong leadership. The Salt Lake stake president, Angus Cannon, testifies that President Woodruff had stopped for nearly a year giving plural marriage recommends into the temple. He stops for a year. And yet Cannon, who says this, interestingly enough, marries another plural wife in the endowment house the day before he he testifies this, and again five months later. So he this could be a case of him telling the public one thing, what they want to hear, and doing something privately. He says, listen, Wil- Wilford Woodruff has stopped doing this. He suspended it for a year, and meanwhile, he's still getting married. And this is something that we're going to see now. The 1880s is full of these contradictions, the prophet saying one thing, even to the to the membership and doing something differently. During that same year that Cannon marries these plural wives, plural marriages continue to happen in the Logan Temple. They're performed by Mariner W. Merrill and also in the Salt Lake Endowment House by Franklin D. Richards and aboard a ship by Francis M. Lyman. So if it's in international waters, this is going to come up later, then it's not illegal, right? So um, (laughs) this also happens in Mexico. We talked about the Mexican colonies. These happen in Mexico by Moses Thatcher and Alexander F. MacDonald. So they're saying that it's suspended, but these are happening, right? They're happening. Um, April, by April, Wilford Woodruff expressed dismay that some speakers at General Conference had even referred to plural marriage. And he was saying, don't talk about it. That's the last thing we need. Do not bring it up in conference. That's the last thing we need. The world's watching. And yet, when he dedicates the Manti Temple in 1888, Wilford Woodruff would say, quote, we are not going to stop the practice of plural marriage until the coming of the Son of Man, end quote. Again, this gives fundamentalists a lot of legitimate ground to stand on. So, So there's just such controversy and conflict, and you can imagine what it would be like to be a member. And of course, it's not like all of this is broadcast like it is now, and where you can YouTube it and find the discrepancies, but these mixed messages are certainly confusing some and giving some audiences what they want to hear and other audiences what they want to hear. July, the church sends emissaries to Washington, D.C., and um, they sort of 
try to work things out, and they want to promise that the temples would be safe from being confiscated. Because, you know, when the Edmunds-Tucker Act comes, they start, you know, they start taking church property. Of course, we talked about this in the Gardo House episode. They confiscate the house, then they try to sell it back to them to this exorbitant amount. And so they're saying, please just don't do that with our temples. So they obtain this sort of promise. And Utah's delegate of the House of Rep- Representatives, John T. Kane, who happened to be an unofficial representative of the church authorities. And again, it's this whole like council of the 50. We're going to, we're going to be in, in politics, but we're also going to be secretly part of church leadership. He would state in the House, quote, Mr. Speaker, there is no longer a possibility of objecting to the Mormons on account of polygamy. That is a dead issue. It cannot be vitalized because it has ceased to exist, end quote. Okay, so that's in 1880. He says, he goes to the government and he says, listen, this is not, this is a non-issue. It's not happening anymore. Yet, the same year in October conference, the apostles meet right before to discuss this question. And they say, quote, Shall we repudiate plural marriage to save the half million dollars the U.S. has seized? They decide, what are we going to do about that? The U.S. has seized half a million dollars of our property. And they decide to let the church lawyers conduct, kind of like go through the legal challenges as best they can without officially announcing the polygamy. So they're saying, you know what, if we can just kind of pretend, let it fly under the radar, then we don't have to announce that we're, that we're going to end it. Maybe if, if the government, if it looks like it's gone away to the government, that's all we need to do. And they, they say that this would allow them to quote, we'd retain our honor before men and our integrity to God. Now, at this time, newspapers are reporting that non-Mormon um, allies of the church are really disappointed with October conference in 1888 because there's no explicit revelation that says that, you know, polygamy is not going to happen. People really hoped, especially faithful members, some faithful members, that, quote, some good angel would speak out commanding the saints to abandon polygamy, at least for a season. And even Idaho, the Supreme Court is talking about this and rules that under Idaho law, any Mormons would be disenfranchised because the church had not explicitly stated that this wasn't going to happen. This is what the the Idaho Supreme Court says, quote, they say, that although the evidence went to indicate the practice of polygamy or bigamy had neither been advised, counseled, nor encouraged within the past two years, yet it was nowhere shown that like a modification had been made in the teachings and doctrines of the general church in such a way as to reach the whole body of members of the church. Such a course might be might have been expected at the last conference, but as no movement of that kind had taken place, it was safe and proper to conclude that nothing of the kind might be anticipated in the near future." End quote. So Salt Lake is under this further pressure now because now it's really starting to ramp up. And um, the apostles give the Idaho saints permission to withdraw their membership. This is hugely important. They say, listen, if you want to be able to vote in Idaho, we give you permission to withdraw your membership from the church and then we will, you know, give it back to you later. So they give this to them, and it said, Mike Quinn notes that they regret this decision within three weeks of doing this. But for a time, this happens. There are stories of whole stakes turning in their membership so they can vote and have power and then, you know, coming back to the church. Can you imagine that happening today? Three months later after that happens, it's December now, it's uh, 1888, Wilford Woodruff, 
still has chaos in the First Presidency. He doesn't have official backing. He asked the apostles to consider a document, quote, said to have come from Washington, but no names or no names were given to it, which would address the Latter-day Saints in Utah and throughout the United States, asking them to conform their lives to the laws of Congress. This document was supposed to be signed by church leaders when published. Okay, so he's saying, let's just put something out there. It'll be fake. He tells them it's not going to be legitimate. It'll be fake, but it will give the government what they want. And he gives the secretary this to read twice to the quorum in 1888. And President Wolfer Woodruff said, quote, It is of the greatest importance that we decide by the spirit what decision to make regarding the same, end quote. And then he doesn't actually talk about the document itself, but asks the rest of the apostles to express themselves from youngest to oldest. So George Cannon, John, George Teasdale, and John W. Taylor, of course, were absent from the meeting. Um, John W. Taylor were absent from the meeting, but all the other apostles are furious. They reject the document. John Henry Smith, Francis Lyman, Moses Thatcher, and Joseph Smith said that they could not approve this, that this was going against, you know, the will of the Lord, that John Taylor had had this revelation, and there's no way they're going to approve a document, even if it was just for show. So Woodruff is even more frustrated he said, quote, had we yielded to that document, every man of us would have been under condemnation before God. The Lord never will give a revelation to abandon plural marriage. So he says, you know what? It's right. They should, they did the right thing. They denied it. And, uh, had they have not, then we would have been under condemnation. Mike Quinn says, quote, if these had been his views before the apostles rejected the document, it is unlikely that he would have asked them to consider signing it. Even the degree of compromise to which President Taylor and Woodruff had already acquiesced by the end of 1888 was unsatisfactory to the apostles, as indicated in Heber J. Grant's comment about this meeting. Quote, Heber J. Grant says, quote, I thank God sincerely for, stop, for a stopping point in the plan of yielding and compromising that we have been engaged in of late. End quote. Now, we don't know what Woodruff felt about this sort of rejection. But he would write in his journal that, quote, document got up for us to accept to do away with polygamy. I don't feel that I owe any apology in presenting this document, and I will now withdraw it, and I don't want anything said about it, end quote. You can see they are under tremendous pressure. Woodruff starts to meet with uh, the First Presidency. He organizes them in 1889 with George Q. Cannon as first counselor and Joseph F. Smith as second. He wants to sort of strengthen his power. He doesn't want a council that is not going to respect him. Now, of course, this is complicated. You know, John Taylor, it wasn't like a smooth transition like it is now. John Taylor dies, and these guys can't really get on board with Wilfred Woodruff being the prophet, at least not how we see the prophet now. So Wilfred Woodruff is trying to establish this. He wants this more assertive grab for power. So he organizes a first presidency. Of course, these are, you know, polygamy is still happening in Mexico, but Mexico is having its own kind of conflict. They have sent people down there to live there, and Aunt Alexander F. MacDonald of the Mexican mission had was still allowed to perform two plural marriages by January 1889. So now we're in 1889. The manifesto that we know of comes out in 1890. 
Woodruff says, I will let you marry these people in Mexico, but give extreme prudence of this ban of plural marriage. Extreme prudence is his word. So McDonald supposedly doesn't perform any other plural marriages for the rest of 1889, just these two. And they're under really, you know, specific circumstances. Wilford Woodruff does not want his first counselor to even know that he allowed that, right? It's such a, like, he doesn't want anyone to know that he's sort of condoning these marriages secretly because he wants to prepare them to accept a document. So in Davis County, a stake president says, hey, can I do some polygamous marriages? And President Woodruff says, quote, I feel that it is not proper for any marriages of this kind to be performed in the territory at the present time. He did say that such marriages were being solemnized in Mexico or Canada. So now these requests are coming in. And even though his first presidency is like saying you cannot abandon polygamy, Wilford Woodruff is telling people to knock it off for a while. George Cucannon was stunned. He said, quote, I made no reply, for I was not fully prepared to endorse these remarks, and therefore thought it better to say nothing. This is the first time that I had heard President Woodruff express himself so plainly upon the subject, and therefore I was not prepared to fully acquiesce in his expressions, for to me it is an exceedingly grave decision, and it is the first time that anything of this kind has ever been uttered to my knowledge by one holding the keys, end quote. We know that Wilfred Woodruff was sort of asking John, or George Q. Cannon, to back him up on this, and to suspend plural marriages. He is shocked. Of course, Canon is a polygamist as well, and he doesn't like the idea of restric- restricting plural marriages. He, he would consider it at a time for just sort of lying to the government and telling them one thing, but actually putting a hold on it was a whole completely different ballgame. The first presidency, however, by September of 1889, decides not to issue any more recommends for plural marriages in Utah, right? Previous before that, the Salt Lake Endowment House and the Logan Temple were issuing recommends for plural marriages for some people. On October 2nd of 1889, Wilford Woodruff calls a meeting of the First Presidency and the Apostles, and he decides to announce this policy. You can imagine what going into that meeting would have felt like. He explains that that it's necessary because Hans Jesperson was recently arrested and he had a plural wife and who was married in the Salt Lake Endowment House and someone had found out and he was arrested. And he said, listen, they're coming for us. It's necessary. We have to do this. Um, and that he was not in favor of plural marriages being performed in the territory, but they might be attended to in Mexico or Canada and thus save our brethren from jeopardy in attending to these matters, end quote. He's feeling this burden. Lorenzo Snow suggested that if this was the new policy, there should be a public announcement of it. But, of course, Joseph F. Smith and Francis W. Lyman and John W. Taylor say, no, you are not going to announce this. This is, this is going against what our previous prophets have said and, of course, what our lives are doing. And John W. Taylor says something that's a bit would come to pass. I guess it's a bit prophetic, as D. Michael Quinn says, quote, This is something that I had never expected to hear discussed in this light. I have understood it was policy for the brethren to take wives outside of the United States. You could not publish that you will not give your consent that plural marriage shall be consummated, and at that same time have the marriages consummated in Canada or Mexico. 
I think it will be best policy to let the matter rest without saying anything about it, because if plural marriages are solemnized, it will soon be known, and we will be considered insincere. I feel to have faith that, that the Lord will bring something about for our deliverance. If we publish anything on this matter, it will be impossible for us or the elders to fully explain to the saints, and much confusion will ensue. End quote. Despite the sort of warning um, and the consensus of the meeting, October of 1889, less than two weeks later after Wilford Woodruff had done that, he makes the following statements during a newspaper interview. Quote, I have refused to give any recommendations for the performance of plural marriage since I have been president. Which, of course, is not true. He has given some, even though he struggled with it. I know that President Taylor, my predecessor, also refused. Again, not true. I am confident, he said, that there have been no more plural marriages since I have been in this position, and yet a case has recently occurred which I will say to you I did not understand at all. It is giving us a good deal of trouble. Perhaps you have heard of it. The present referred to Hans Jefferson case. It seemed incredible if true, Woodruff said. It is against all my instructions. I do not understand it at all. We are looking into it and shall not rest until we get all the facts. There is no intention on our part to do anything but to obey the law, end quote. So they throw poor Hans Jefferson under the bus and they say this guy was acting roguely. And of course, that's not the case. We know that they issued these recommends and that they have issued this. This is a great quote from Mike Quinn. He says, quote, It should not have been difficult for President Woodruff to discover the facts about Jefferson plural marriage in the Salt Lake Endowment House. In 1889, Apostle Franklin D. Richards performed the ceremony, which was recorded in the Endowment House sealing record, and the most likely individuals to have signed the recommend were either President Woodruff himself or George W. Cannon, end quote. So, of course, this is, a, this is an outright lie, and it sets up further precedents for members to to understand the sort of code that the presidents are, of the church are going to say one thing and they're going to do another. So we sort of disregard what is said publicly and we do our own thing privately. Now this gets crazy. This is serious stuff. A week after this, President Woodruff authorizes the destruction of the Salt Lake City Endowment House. Not, as he later claims in the 1890 Manifesto, because of the Jefferson plural marriage, but as a part of a plan to employ hundreds of Mormons who were not residents of Salt Lake City to work on projects so they could register to vote against the anti-Mormon political party in the upcoming Salt Lake City election. This is a huge deal. Church attorneys urge him to do this because they say it would help the church's case in the courts. By having John W. Young testify under oath that the first presidency had ruled no plural marriages were to be reformed and that there was some mention made of this being done in conference and not in the court. They're saying, listen, if if we destroy this, then it's going to be legitimized. They're going to know that we're serious. George Q. Cannon is vehemently opposed to this and says it would quote hurt the feelings of the faith of our and the faith of our own people i want president woodruff if i can have my feelings gratified and if anything is to be said on the subject in this direction to be able to say thus saith the lord so they drop the matter they decide not to do this for a little while and of course wilford woodruff still has it in the back of his mind he dictates a revelation on November 24th, 1889, which says, quote, Let not my servants who are called to the presidency of my church deny my word or my law, which concerns the salvation of the children of men, 
Place not yourselves in jeopardy to your enemies by promise. Let my servants who officiate as your counselors before the courts make their pleadings as they have been moved by the Holy Spirit without any further pledges from the priesthood, and they shall be justified. End quote. He presents this revelation to the Quorum of the Twelve. They are excited about it, and they write how happy they are and how filled with joy they are. But this revelation paints them into a corner, Mike Quinn says. It specifically denies Wilford Woodruff's prayerful request to issue an official statement in court or in general conference that there would no longer be plural marriages, and general authorities would remember this when further developments would come across. So even though they're happy, this this is going to cause some conflict down the road. Things are getting crazy. February 3rd, 1890, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, upholds the section of the Idaho State Constitution that disenfranchised any Mormon who was a polygamist. And on the 10th of the month, the anti-Mormon political party wins the Salt Lake City election. The Gentiles are starting to get power now because of it. Church loses their political control, and George Cannon publishes a newspaper interview to this question, why doesn't the head of your church, the First Presidency and the Twelve Apostles, issue an official declaration upon the subject? Why don't you say, as a church, that polygamy is no longer taught and is not encouraged by the church? Of course, one of the reasons why they're not going to say that, even though they've been grappling with it, is because... Just a few months before, this 1889 revelation from the First Presidency says they're not going to do this. But Cannon does not say this in the newspaper. So he says in, instead, quote, Plural marriages have ceased. Those of us, men and women, who went into polygamy years ago are dying off. A few years will end that issue, end quote. He's not wrong in a way. Plural marriages stop in Utah. But... The First Presidency is secretly resuming giving recommends for plural marriages to be performed in Mexico. So Mormons are still getting married polygamously. Uh, McDonald, who is performing these ceremonies, performs 24 plural marriages from January 1st to June 27th in 1890. Okay, so 24 polygamous marriages. George Q. Cannon, in 1890, of, in February of 1890, he meets with the Democratic, uh, the chairman of the Democratic National Committee and tries to give similar arguments. He says, how could any man come out and say it was not right or that it must be discontinued and set themselves up in the opposition before God? And yet, even though they're trying to deflect this federal crusade against polygamy by saying one thing, the government is still very distrustful. In an April bill of 1890, there was there were a few bills that were proposed to the U.S. House and Senate that that wanted to disenfranchise all LDS um, saints, all of them, because they belonged to the organization that encouraged polygamy. That's a serious deal. They're saying, we are going to take away your rights of citizenship, you're not going to be able to vote, and it doesn't matter if you're a polygamist now. It matters that you're a Mormon. By May of 1880, the federal government is pushing the church further and further down the road. On May 3rd, the Desert Evening News editorialized, quote, the practice of polygamy has, has been suspended if not suppressed. Federal officials didn't believe that. They didn't, they didn't want that. They were demanding an official statement. They wanted it read over the pulpit. They know what this meant. And of course, the Supreme Court 
rules that the Edmund Tucker's Act was constitutional and um, gives provisions to dis discorporate the church and confiscate all the church properties. So they're adding even more pressure. The church is sending emissaries to the government. There's going back and forth. George Buchanan is one of them. When he returns back in June, Joseph F. Smith, who happens to be the second counselor at the time, warns him that plural marriages that are being performed in Mexico secretly might become public knowledge because there had been some that had gone down to meet Brother McDonald who were performing them and they attracted considerable attention. The government's even watching them there. Mike Quinn notes that this is an understatement. Early in June, 10 couples accompanied Apostle Brigham Young Jr. and his intended polygamous wife to Mexico. According to the son of one of these couples, the excursion was conducted like a gala outing. Quote, he Young sent word through the grapevine that if there was any couples in the area, these stakes that contemplating marrying into polygamy, that they were to catch this train. They went down to Cash Junction. They caught the train there and went to Salt Lake. There was others that went with them. They went down there to Mexico and Brigham Young Jr. married another polygamous wife and he had several wives. End quote. So they're kind of like having a polygamy party down in Mexico, hoping that this doesn't attract any attention and not is it just any old person it's Brigham Young's son who is doing this this is going to just cause more problems because here Wilford Woodruff is doing his best to avoid making a public statement he is saying listen we're not doing it anymore it's not a problem and then something like this happens this attracts attention it's starting to be known that President Woodruff might possibly be allowing 20, you know, these, these recommends to happen. And, you know, that mass marriage of June 7th, 1890 was where he allowed 23 marriages and he would allow one more. The first presidency now is under extreme pressure. They're saying, we don't believe you. We know that you're just saying, telling us one thing and you're doing another thing. And, uh, we want you to give a public statement. Through July and August, the Senate introduces a bill that would ban polygamists or anyone that was a Mormon belonging to this organization from homesteading in Wyoming. Okay, this is a huge deal. And the anti-Mormon political party wins the election and now has controlled the secular education in the city. So not only are they not allowing you to do things, to have basic civil rights, but they're saying, we, we get to plan your curriculum and we're going to be teaching your kids. The Utah Supreme Court rules that polygamous children could not inherit their parents, their father's estates. And the anti-Mormon party would win most of the county offices in Salt Lake and Weber County. They're starting to take over. They're starting to get pressure. The church is getting heavily in debt. Their properties are being confiscated. We cannot overstate the pressure that they are be that they are in. Not only are they being arrested, families are being broken up, they're losing their property, they're losing their right to vote, they're losing their right to buy property, they're losing their right to inherit their money. The government is putting so much pressure on them, trying to twist their arm and really limit their choices. If you are Wilford Woodruff and you strongly, strongly believe in this, what are your options here as a leader? Imagine the conflict you'd be feeling. President Wilford Woodruff begins to hear rumors that the government might actually confiscate 
the Manti, Logan, and St. George temples, even though they promised they wouldn't. He was said to exclaim, quote, We must do something to save our temples, end quote. He gets confirmation that despite the agreement in 1888 not to disturb the temples, that the government has the intention to do this. Wilford Woodard have been publicly saying for nine years that if they give up polygamy, they're going to have to give up all temple ordinances. And now this seems to be a fulfillment of that warning. Federal officials were on the verge of confiscating the temples because the church would not officially announce the abandonment of it. And, of course, Wilfred is in a tight spot because he dictates his 1889 revelation where he specifically says, quote, Place not yourselves in jeopardy to your enemies by promise. He says, we're not going to do this. So what? his hands are tied. What is he supposed to do? Mike Quinn notes, quote, It was a cruel dilemma for an 83-year-old man who valued temples and temple ordinances above anything else. And he hurriedly left Salt Lake with his counselors on September 3rd, 1890 for San Francisco to avoid being subpoena, subpoenaed to testify in the court case, end quote. When we talk about the cessation of polygamy, you can't talk about it without discussing the manifestos. The story goes now that this was an inspired revelation. Of course, we know that inspired might be the operative word. What does inspiration mean? Because this is a really messy, messy process. There are several manifestos. The famous one is the 1890 manifesto. It doesn't completely end the practice, which would have to bring up the second manifesto, which would come out during the U.S. congressional hearings in 1904. Neither of these manifestos dissolve existing plural marriages, but it does help them die out. The 1890 manifesto becomes known as the Woodruff Manifesto or the Anti-Polygamy Manifesto. And, uh, of course, Woodruff is under incredible, incredible pressure. What, what is Woodruff to do? First, the first presidency meets on September 12th with Morris M. Estee, who is a California judge and who has also been the chairman of the Republican National Committee during the successful candidacy of the U.S. current U.S. president. He tells the Mormons that they would do everything they could to help the cause of them, um, but it was absolutely necessary that sooner or later they would have to make an announcement. Please do this. We will try to be sympathetic. Two days after that meeting, the Salt Lake Tribune prints the most recent report of the Federal Utah Commission, which was also uh, commissioned by the Secretary of the Interior. So here's what it says. Headline, 41 new polygamists. The commission is in receipt of reports from its registration officers in Utah, which enumerate 41 male persons who it is believed have entered into the polygamic relation in their several precincts since the June revision of 1889, end quote. It's said that Wilford Woodruff reacts to this, and this is one of the reasons why he feels even more compelled to make a formal reply. So he is in San Francisco. He returns to Salt Lake City um, on September 21st. And this first presidency meet with the church attorney, Franklin S. Richards, and Desert News editor, Charles W. Penrose. And they, they tell the first presidency that the Utah Commission's report would really pass these disenfranchisement bills through Congress and that they have to act on this. George Q. Cannon would 
would write in his diary, quote, they have accused us of teaching polygamy and encouraging people in practice. And since June 1889, there have been at least 45 plural marriages contracted in this territory. I felt considerably stirred up over this and thought that there should be a square denial. And I remarked that perhaps no better chance had been offered us to offered us to officially as leaders of the church make public our views concerning the doctrine and the law that has been enacted, end quote. So now even the the apostles are getting on board. They can't lose their temple. They don't want to be disenfranchised. They they know that this is necessary. He even canon sees a denial necessary to kind of stall the hostile legislation that is coming their way. He believes that an official statement would not necessarily end polygamy, but it would give the government what they wanted. And many of the apostles felt the same way. If they could do something publicly, then they could still do it secretly. Because as Mormons, they were pretty good at the secret marriage type thing if it was done on a specific secretive basis. Wilford Woodruff responds to the situation and tells Apostle Moses Thatcher that something has to be done. He also telegraphs Mariner W. Merrill in the Logan Temple and Franklin D. Richards at Ogden and Lorenzo Snow at Brigham City to meet with the First Presidency that afternoon. So they meet on the 24th. Woodruff does not write the document yet, but he will soon. As he enters the First Presidency office that morning, he tells John R. Winder, who was then a member of the presiding bishopric, that he had not slept the night before. He said, quote, I have been struggling all night with the Lord about what should be done under the existing circumstances of the church. He said, here's the result, and he lays some papers on the table. George Cucana would later say, this whole matter has been at present Wilford's instance. He felt strongly compelled to do what... He has, and he has spoken with great plainness to the brethren in regard to the necessity of something of this kind being done. He has stated that the Lord had made it plain to him that it was his duty, and he felt perfectly clear in his mind that it was the right thing. What the paper consisted was 510 words. This document was edited and would become the manifesto text of 356 words, so it's edited down. George Buchanan outlines... Um, the sort of revision process, because it was frequently the case, he says, that when important documents are framed, there is no disposition to attribute their authority to one and another. And I have often been credited without saying and doing things which I did not say or do. We get sort of this boardroom revelation now. This is where revelations are being edited and documented. So the First Presidency deliberates over this. They really believe at the time that that a public denial is necessary, but it doesn't necessarily have to be followed through. Woodruff would say that on the night of September 23rd, 1890, he receives a revelation from Jesus Christ that the church should cease the practice of plural marriage. The following morning, he reports this to some general authorities and places this handwritten draft on the table. George Reynolds would later recount that he, Charles W. Penrose, and John R. Winder modified Woodruff's draft in the current language accepted by the general authorities to the church as a whole. Woodruff announces the manifesto on September 25th by publishing it in the church's own Desert Weekly in Salt Lake City. On October 6, 1890, during the 60th semi-annual general conference, the manifesto was formally accepted by common consent by the church membership. And guess what happens? The church applies for statehood again 
and it's granted. They are rewarded for this. On January 4th, 1896, the government seemingly wins. The manifesto states in part, quote, and I deny that either 40 or any other number of plural marriages have during this period since June of 1889 been solemnized in our temples or in any other place in the territory. And I now publicly declare that my advice to the Latter-day Saints is to refrain from contracting any marriages forbidden by the law of the land. Of course, this is still distrusted. The, the Salt Lake Tribune, which was anti-Mormon at the time, pretends that the declaration is a revelation, although no one um, to this day has heard anything except the lying sheets say it was a revelation. The government calls it, the manifesto is a deception. Polygamists would say it's a covenant with death and agreement with hell. The manifesto has major falling out. According to historian Klaus J. Hansen, it was merely a tactical maneuver, not inspiration. But to historians James B. Allen and Glenn M. Leonard, it was not just simply a political document. We know about some of the struggles. We know how it came about. We know that it was a collaboration with, you know, George Reynolds and Charles Penrose and John R. Winder and Wilford Woodruff to change this sort of revelation. We know that it wasn't necessarily inspiration. We know this is a result of tremendous, tremendous pressure. And we also know <laughs> that the Manifesto of 1890 did not stop Mormons from continuing to be married, including Wilford Woodruff himself. And that is where we're going to end today. So taking all that information, I'm going to link Mike, D. Michael Quinn's amazing dialogue essay. Read it all. It contains spoilers for what we're going to be talking about in the future. But thank you for joining us for another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Your Polygamy Podcast. Please leave a donation or a monthly subscription by clicking the donate button at feministmormonhousewivespodcast.org. And we'll see you again next week.